Well, today the title of the sermon, Deliverance at Midnight. Do you like to be delivered? Saved by the bell, if you will? To be rescued? You may recall the Bosnian War that took place in April of 1992 to December of 1995. It was an international armed conflict that took place in Bosnia and Herzegovina during that time period. And it got to the point that NATO intervened after allegations of war crimes against civilians that was put up in the media and different things. And so NATO's primary involvement was to enforce a no-fly zone over the area. And so as part of that mission, these F-16s would patrol this area of Bosnia, typically two F-16s, and they would patrol around the same area on the same loop, almost like clockwork day after day. Why they did it that way, I don't know exactly. But it was on June 2nd, 1995, that as one of these was flown by a 29-year-old United States Air Force pilot, Scott O'Grady, that something very unique took place. As they flew around this routine pattern, the Bosnia Serb army laid a trap for these planes. And so to avoid being detected, they turned off their radar and only used it sparingly. And when the plane would fly over top, then they would shoot their missile in the direction of the plane and then turn on their radar and with the hope that the missile would be close enough and everything would happen so fast they wouldn't have time to respond. This was the Cub surface-to-air missile that was being used. And so when they fired these two missiles into the air, O'Grady's cockpit alerted him that there was a missile coming, but because he was flying through an overcast sky, he could not see exactly where it was coming from or how to avoid it. The first missile exploded between the two aircraft that were flying together. The second struck the F-16 that O'Grady was in. The other pilot couldn't tell for sure, but it was later verified that he was able to eject out of the aircraft and float down to Safety. Well, sort of. Some of you are familiar with the story. He was in enemy territory, to be sure. O'Grady's mind was racing as he parachuted down, knowing that he was a target, knowing that they were going to find him as quickly as possible. And so he was thinking about what he needed to do, how he needed to do it, the order of operations. This was no simulation. This was the real thing. And he had limited time to hide before these Bosnian Serb forces would hunt him down and take him as hostage or kill him. And so upon landing, he has secured a 29-pound survival bag. He ran, but the sound of troops demanded that he hide and fast. And so he found some bushes off tucked to the side, and he dove underneath, and he scrubs his whole face with dirt, and he puts his head down, and he hopes for the best. And within just moments, there are troops and boots and guns all surrounding exactly where he had just been, or even where he is, just off in the bushes, trying to breathe, not deeply, but calmly so these leaves would not be going up and down and up and down. They shot into the air multiple times in hopes to scare him and flush him out. But he stayed still, tried to remain calm, thankful for the 17 days of intense training of what to do in these types 
of situations. Finally, the group would move on after a period of time. And he would briefly send out with his radio what they call super shouts to just let people know that I'm alive and that I'm in this general area. But communication had to be brief because the enemy could pick up on those little pings as well. And so he'd turn it on and turn it off. Turn it on and turn it off. Carefully, as time would allow in the middle of the night, O'Grady had to move his way around in this unknown forest to try to find a place where rescue could come, where a helicopter might be able to land, and he had to do it all undetected. Day one went by. Day two went by. Three and four went by. The rations in the survival kit were old and stale and small and very quickly gone. He found himself having to eat leaves and grass and bugs and a little bit of rainwater he could catch in some plastic and a sponge. On the sixth night, on the ground, sleeping through the rain and and so on, he made radio contact, signaling his location using his radio's limited battery power at this point. And on the sixth day, just after midnight, on June 8th, 1995, O'Grady spoke into the radio, and from that brief conversation, a rescue was set in motion. And let me tell you, the rescuers came in force. Two sea stallions, loaded full with 51 Marines each, coming to his rescue, but not by themselves. They were backed up by two super cobras. Not one, but two. There was also not just one, but two pair of Harrier jump jets that followed. And so you didn't have just the one helicopter, but you had six aircraft. And these six aircraft were backed up with six identical aircraft ready to jump in when needed. But there was further aircraft support. There were two of these, Navy prowlers that can jam enemy radar systems. There were two Air Force Ravens, which can do some electronic jamming and travel at supersonic speed. There was some F-18 Hornets, which is a fighter and attack aircraft. There were two A-10 Thunderbolts, effective at attacking ground targets and can fly low and slow. All of this was engaged and ready for one man's rescue. There was even a Sikorsky Seahawks that took off from a nearby ship, uh, a search and rescue helicopter, and it took off from this guided missile cruiser. It's a little bit overwhelming to think of all of this planning that went in to save this one man. Oh, I forgot about this. This is called an AWACS which is a highly sensitive radar system that can detect aircraft and ships and vehicles. It's kind of the eyes and ears of the entire rescue. So all of this is being employed for Scott O'Grady. And so at 6.35 in the morning, the helicopters approached the area where O'Grady's signal beacon had been traced. And the pilot saw some bright yellow smoke coming from the trees near a rocky pasture where O'Grady had set off a flare. 
The first sea stallion touched down and 20 Marines jumped off the aircraft to set up a perimeter. As the second sea stallion landed, O'Grady appeared running towards the Marines and immediately dove into the side door of the helicopter. They're trying to identify who is this person. Yes, this is O'Grady. Quick, what are we doing? We're still trying to deploy troops. No, 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 stop. Close the doors. Everybody back in. They're taking a quick head count. Is everybody here? Yes, yes, yes. Check, check, check. Only seven minutes after they landed, they take off. And these big helicopters are on their way. That wasn't the end of the story, however. As they flew low over Serb-held Bosnia, the American aircraft detected a Serb missile radar along with Croatian coast scanning for targets. The request was made to take the missile launcher out, but they said that request was denied. They said, no, no, we don't want to heighten any of this and create a greater war. Uh, and so they just continued on. Minutes later, the Marines reported they were under fire. Three shoulder-launched surface-to-air missiles had been fired at them, but because of the quick response of these helicopters, they were avoided. They were only flying 150 feet off the ground at 175 miles an hour. And they were jinking or dodging to evade these missiles. Gunfire was heard in these helicopters as well. They could hear it going into the fuselage. It hit some of the communication gear. Another lodge in one of the Marines' armed uniform. But he was not injured because he had on the proper gear. One door gunner returned fire. Finally, at 7.15, 30 minutes after picking up O'Grady, the rescuers reported, our feet are wet, meaning they were over water. By 7.30 a.m., O'Grady was back aboard the Kearsarge in time, you could say, for breakfast. All the aircraft landed without further incident, and it was considered a great success. Scott O'Grady had been saved out of the clutches of the enemy with great effort, with great cost, and even with some sacrifice, but it was successful. You can see O'Grady here exiting the aircraft, still with a dirty face, after a harrowing six days behind enemy lines. Time Magazine later wrote an article on the harrowing story, and others picked it up, and movies were made, and so on and so forth. It was dubbed an incredible and successful rescue. But can you imagine waiting, waiting, waiting? Lots of time to think, to reflect, to ponder, to wonder if rescue would come, or would he just be chalked up as a casualty of war? I imagine there were some very low moments for O'Grady over those six days and six nights. But friends, when the time was right, Every possible support of the United States military was used to safely bring O'Grady home. And that's why I like this story. We've been going through a series entitled Final Events. And in the same way, God is not doing everything he can to keep us out. He's doing everything he can to bring us home. Amen. If you're joining us late in this series, here's a list of many topics that we have been covering as we've been marching through what the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy have to share with us about what we can expect. And so we're down here at the bottom of the list, 
God's people delivered. This is the good news. And as we go through this, some of you may say, I'm confused about this part or that part. I would encourage you to go back and pick up some of these other sermons and listen to them. They're available on Audioverse. Donnie's been good about uploading those to Audioverse. Most of them are there. They're on our church website. You can go to our live stream and click there. They're also on YouTube, a Bible Truth for These Times, that's what it's called, I believe. Uh, they're there, and you can share them there. So there's many ways to access it. But we're looking at the piece now that I'm excited about, God's people delivered. I'm excited that we serve a God that will deliver his people. He doesn't just say, well, it didn't work out. Let's just wash our hands and try again. No, God has placed himself, Jesus has placed himself in the way of the enemy, has sacrificed his well-being has spilt blood on our behalf that we may be delivered. And that's good news. And so our title, and and we have one more piece, I believe it'll be in two weeks, the second coming. And so we're going to be talking about that in greater detail as well. So this is part nine, and it's entitled Deliverance at Midnight. To begin, we're going to try and pick up a little bit where we left off last time, And that's why if you have not listened to last week's sermon, you might want to go back and grab that. But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we looked at how Michael stands up and how this is the close of probation. The verse here on the screen, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, at that time, Michael, another name for Christ, shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, that's Jacob's time of trouble that we looked at last time, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be, what's the word? Delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. So those who stand through the judgment, those who stand through Jacob's time of trouble will be delivered. Underline it, star it, put all of these little lines out like it's glowing. This is important. God's people will be delivered. We see it very plainly here. We see deliverance of God's people, those whose names are written in the book of life. Friends, this is clear evidence that there is an investigative judgment, and the end result of the investigative judgment is that God's people will be delivered. Another verse also speaks of the end of the world, and we see that in this Joel chapter 2, verse 31. It says, The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. Referring to May 19, 1780, many history books talk about that, but that's kind of bringing us into an end-time scenario. This says, Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass, verse 32, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be, what's the word? Delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall Call. Thank you, Lisa, for reading that, that verse for us, for our scripture reading. Friends, this word delivered is the same word used in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that we just saw earlier. And the context of this passage in Joel makes it clear that this is the end of world language, end of time language, final events language. And so if you look at this passage as well, it has Mount Zion, it mentions Jerusalem and the remnant. I would suggest to you that all three of those are synonymous. 
or meaning virtually the same thing. Mount Zion was on the north side of Jerusalem, and it's being compared here to the remnant. We see similar language at the end of Daniel chapter 11. We've looked at the end of Daniel chapter 11. It's a little bit of a complicated verse, and I put in there what we've learned along the way, and it says, and he, the context says the king of the north, which we know shall be the papacy, shall plant the tabernacles, or church, of his palace, or state, between the seas, plural, that's Mediterranean and Dead Sea, which is Jerusalem, or God's people, the remnant, in the glorious holy mountain, we could say Mount Zion, Jerusalem, remnant, Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. Again, this idea of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the remnant, same thing, God's people that are faithful to him. And we see it there in Daniel chapter 11 as well. We see it other places. Psalm verse 48, the first two verses, it says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Do you see the same three there listed? And so we see in Joel, we see in Daniel, we see in Psalm that Mount Zion symbolizes the remnant. Jerusalem, we could include there the 144,000. And so if we go back to Joel 2.32, I'll put it back up here on the screen. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. This is a beautiful verse. Because whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be delivered. These are the ones who stand through Jacob's time of trouble. These are the 144,000 who will stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb. These are those who are spiritual Jerusalem or the remnant church. As it says other places, these are those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They are all the ones who have called on the name of the Lord, and they will be the ones who will receive deliverance. Isaiah 4, verse 3, we also need to look at as well. In Isaiah chapter 2 and 3, they are clearly talking about end of time as they speak repeatedly of the day of the Lord. It says the events that will come to pass in the latter days. That's repeated. How the wicked will hide at the glory of God's coming. It also speaks of how the Lord will arise terribly to shake the earth. All of that is in Isaiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 3, and it says, And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. This is all talking about the same group of people. Similar language. Those in Zion, those that remain in Jerusalem, those that we call holy. We might even say in the book of life, and we continue on verse 4, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. These are God's people that have their sins blotted out. Praise the Lord for that. Do we have some filth in our lives that needs to be taken care of? There's a way to take care of it. God wants to take care of it. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst. But the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, you see the end of judgment there. Then the Lord will create 
above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud, a smoke by day and the shine of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory they will be covered. So again, cloud, smoke, flaming fire. This is God's protective presence. This is familiar language to the children of Israel. God himself is the protector of his people. However, the presence of a holy God can only materialize among people who are holy. That is why his people need to wash and purge anything that is contrary to the holiness of God. And he says, I've made provision for that too. Don't cling to your sinfulness. Purge. Let it be taken away from you that you may dwell in my presence that I may cover you. Verse 6, and there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Here again you see the deliverance of God's people. He will shield them from heat and from storm. And those who are left on Mount Zion, those who remain in Jerusalem, those that are the remnant of God's people, will be the one who, in verse 3, are called holy. They will be recorded among the living in Jerusalem. And they'll be delivered. Friends, these are the people we want to be. Isn't it? We want to be found recorded in the written book of life. When Michael stands up, We want to be the ones that have called on the name of the Lord. We want to be accounted as being Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the remnant. We want to be among those written among the living in Jerusalem, those that are called holy. And for clarification, I don't know that I need to make it, but it's not because we earned it. It's not because we're good enough, but because we fully depended on Jesus Christ, who is worthy, who is worthy good enough. It's because we're fully surrendered to Jesus and because we allow Jesus Christ to change us, to change you and me. And by his grace, we are living for Jesus Christ. These are the ones that the promise comes out very clear, will be delivered. Early writings, page 282 I saw the saints leaving the cities and villages and associating together in companies and living in the most solitary places. Angels provided them food and water while the wicked were suffering from hunger and thirst. This is the seven last plagues, right? Angels providing them with food and with water. Sounds very much like Isaiah 33, 16. Bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Here's another one from early writings, page 56. The Lord showed me repeatedly that it is contrary to the Bible to make any provision for our temporal wants in the time of trouble. Now some of you may read that and you may say, hold on, I thought we were supposed to prepare for end times. Well, that is true, but when the time of trouble comes, it will be so bad. If you think you will have provision to carry you through to that time, think again. It won't happen. Let's keep reading this quotation. It says, I saw that if saints had food laid up by them or in the field in the time of trouble, when sword, famine, and pestilence are in the land, it would be taken from them by violent hands and strangers would reap their fields. They're desperate, right? They will be at the time for us to trust wholly in God. And he, and I would say he alone, will sustain us. 
So don't hear what I'm not saying. It's, it's okay if you see the events happening around us. You say, I'm going to get a little extra of this. I'm going to get a little extra of that. That will probably come in handy at a certain point in time. Those of you that had a little extra gas this week were probably better prepared. But if you think at the end of time, in terms of in t- Jacob's time of trouble, that you're going to have a bomb shelter and stock supplies someplace that you're going to rely upon, think again. Somebody built that bomb shelter. Somebody sold you that food. Somebody knows where you live. You can't get fully off the grid. They will find you and they will take what you have. But the children of God are okay with that. You'd like some here, have some. Help yourself. But the children of God will be protected by the angels and their bread and water during that time will be sure. I saw that our bread and water will be sure at that time and that we shall not lack or suffer hunger for God is able to spread a table before us in the wilderness. Doesn't this sound a little bit like Psalm 23? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we could say seven last plagues, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Is God able to do that? He sure is. Continuing, if necessary, he would send ravens to feed us as he did to feed Elijah or rain manna from heaven as he did for the Israelites. Houses and lands will be of no use to the saints in the time of trouble. Just like Elijah was sustained by the hand of God, we too, during this time, will be sustained by God. I was curious, I looked it up a raven can carry about a pound and a half. Now, God can do anything at the end of time, right? He can make a raven carry as much as he wants the raven to carry. But most of the things you have delivered to your home from Amazon weigh less than a pound and a half. But anyway, how much does a loaf of bread weigh? I don't know. I should have looked it up. But the ravens are going to supply our needs. Manna, all these things will come together. And we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is providing This one's from Maranatha 270. During the night, a very impressive scene passed before me. There seemed to be great confusion and conflict of armies. A messenger from the Lord stood before me and said, Call your household and I will lead you. Follow me. So there's a messenger from the Lord saying, Psst, get your family together. Okay, we're all here. Good. Follow me. I'll show you the way. And he led me down a dark passage through a forest, then through the clefts of mountains, and said, here you are safe. Where can I go? Where can I get off the grid? You know, I've thrown away my cell phones and everything else, but they can do heat seeking or or, or whatever it is to find out exactly where I am. How can I be safe? And the angel says, follow me. Get your family. I'm going to keep you safe. And then it continues, there were others who had been led to this retreat. And the heavenly messenger said, the time of trouble has come as a thief in the night. As the Lord warned you, it would come. Here's the amazing thing. During the time of trouble, when we are fleeing to the mountains, angels lead us to these safe places. And I love this idea that we will be led to other saints, other people that perhaps have been an encouragement to us that we haven't seen for a long time. Are they okay? Where are they? I don't know. And then all of a sudden I get led back into this little cave somewhere. It's you. You're okay. Praise the Lord. And there's hugging and squeezing and and reciting of scripture verses and, and maybe even some singing. And we're encouraging each other during this time. Isn't that beautiful? 
I just love that thought, and I love this quote. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful promise that his angels will lead us to safe places, lead us to close friends, perhaps, or for our physical needs to be provided and so on. I also can't help but think of Queen Esther and the plight of God's people at the end of time who face the death decree and, and the similarities between that and uh, the story of Esther. And just as Haman moved upon unsuspecting King Azuerus to declare a death decree against the Jews, we see in this story that God worked in a marvelous way to deliver his people. You remember the story through Queen Esther and Mordecai. Friends, I believe at the close of time, God is going to work in a similar way on our behalf. It seemed hopeless for God's people, didn't it? But did God overcome? Yes. In fact, there's such an irony in that story. And the way it sets up everything. And everybody says, they're going to be hammered. They're going to be smashed. There's no way out. We've thought of everything, and it looks hopeless and doom and gloom. And then just at the last, everything turns on its head, and justice is served, and God's people are delivered. Do you see some parallels there? This is in Prophets and Kings 605. The decree that will finally go forth against the remnant people of God will be very similar to that issued by Azuerus against the Jews. Today, the enemies of truth, of the true church, see in the little company keeping the Sabbath commandment a Mordecai at the gate. Remember, they hated Mordecai. Haman did. Hated him. Says the reverence of God's people for his law is a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling on his Sabbath. Satan will arouse indignation against the minority who refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. Men of position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt. Persecuting rulers, ministers, and even church members will conspire against them with a voice and pen by boasts, threats, and ridicule. They will seek to overthrow their faith. Does this sound overwhelming? It sure does. Does it sound like everything is against the people of God? It sure does. Every tweet, every news article, every person of position by false representations and angry appeals, men will stir up the passions of the people. And then notice this, not having a thus saith the scriptures to bring against the advocates of the Bible Sabbath, they'll resort to oppressive enactments to supply the lack. And we see a lot of those types of bully tactics happening today. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for Sunday laws. They don't necessarily bring it in, they just yield to it. That's what politicians are best at anyway. They have to appeal to their base. They have to be reelected. They have to keep their power. But those who fear God cannot accept an institution that violates the precept of the Decalogue. On this battlefield will be fought the last great conflict and the controversy between truth and error. And we are not left in doubt as to the issue. Today, as in the days of Esther and Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate his truth and his people so just as esther and mordecai and the jewish people were delivered god's people will be delivered from death decree at the end of the world 
And so we don't need to be worried, as the song that we heard this morning said. We don't need to be worried about whether or not God's people will prevail. But we can have full assurance that through Jacob's time of trouble, God's people will be delivered. Now we've already laid a scriptural foundation for that. And we've already looked at a fair number of quotations. But if you will allow me, I'd like to put a few more quotations up. I think the Bible already establishes what's going to happen. So the quotations don't necessarily change what we've already established. They just kind of flesh out with a little more detail what's coming. And I think that it's helpful. And so I want to look. There's an entire chapter in the great controversy called God's People Delivered. And I would encourage you to go home and read it. It's right there at the end, and it's encouraging. But I want to share with you some pieces of that. It says, When the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. As the time appointed in the decree draws near, the people will conspire to root out the hated sect. That's you, by the way. It will be determined to strike in one night a decisive blow which shall utterly silence the voice of dissent and reproof. Enough is enough. A date has been set. We will exterminate them on this day. We've given them every opportunity. They will not conform, and so we know how to act. With shouts of triumph and jeering and imprecation, throngs of evil men are about to rush upon their prey. When lo, a dense blackness, deeper than the darkness of the night, falls upon the earth. Then a rainbow, shining with the glory from the throne of God, spans the heavens and seems to encircle each praying company. What are God's people doing during this time? Praying. They hear them making their noise. They hear them beating on the doors. They know that their time is short, and so they are praying, praying, praying. The angry multitudes are suddenly arrested. Their mocking cries die away. Why? They're in pitch blackness. The objects of their murderous rage are forgotten. With fearful forebodings, they gaze upon the symbol of God's covenant, that's the rainbow, and long to be shielded from its overpowering brightness. And so just when it seems God's people are going to be wiped off the face of the earth, the masses are angry. They look to us as the cause of the trouble in this world. And so with murderous rage, they strike against God's people with a death decree, and the wicked are moving upon God's people to destroy us. And then this dense blackness enshrouds them, and they're not able to move forward in destroying God's people. And the quote continues, By the people of God a voice, clear, melodious, is heard saying, Look up. Look up, and lifting their eyes to the heavens, they behold the bow of promise. So for us, this is a clear and melodious voice that is like music to our ears, and we see this bow of promise, of God's protection, and it says the black angry clouds that covered the firmament are parted like Stephen. They look up steadfastly into heaven and see the glory of God and the Son of Man seated upon his throne. In his divine form, they discern the marks of his humiliation, and from his lips they hear the request presented before his Father and the holy angels. I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. Jesus says, I got to go get my kids. We know this promise from John 17. And so here Jesus says to the Father, please let those whom you've given me be with me where I am. He's saying, it's time for me to come to this earth and to take my children home. 
And then we hear these very words spoken. Continuing again, a voice musical and triumphant is heard saying, they come, they come, holy, harmless, undefiled. They have kept the word of my patience. They shall walk among the angels and the pale, quivering lips of those who have held fast their faith utter a shout of victory. Friends, this will be a moment of triumph and victory. Just as the wicked are about to wipe us off the map and destroy us, then we hear this voice from heaven saying that we are being delivered. And in that glorious moment, those quivering lips, we shout the shout of victory. It is at midnight that God manifests his power for the deliverance of his people. The sun appears, shining in its strength. Signs and wonders follow in quick succession. The wicked look with terror and amazement upon the scene, while the righteous behold with solemn joy the tokens of their deliverance. Everything in nature seems turned out of its course. The streams cease to flow. Dark, heavy clouds come upon and clash against each other. In the midst of the angry heavens is one clear space of indescribable glory whence comes the voice of God like the sound of many waters saying, it is done. Revelation 16, 17. That is the seventh plague that we looked at last week. It is done. You recall these seven last plagues. The sores, the sea turns to blood, the rivers turn to blood, the scorching sun, the darkness, Armageddon. In each of these, God's people discover that all physical security, all economic security, our life, true worship, true light is all in Christ. Everything they say they can deliver, they cannot. And in the sixth plague, we have Armageddon. We have the drying up of the river Euphrates and the three unclean spirits, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. So you have spiritualism, the papacy, apostate, Protestantism, uniting, and the people's support is drying up. So to rally the people one last time, Satan impersonates Christ. A date is set for a death decree, like the time of Esther, and the wicked are quickly moving upon the righteous, and then the seventh plague is poured out. And I want to read it with you one last time. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 16. We're going to read the last few verses of this, this chapter. Revelation chapter 16, beginning verse 17. Revelation 16, verse 17, it says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city, Babylon, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Verse 20, then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's about 75 pounds. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Nobody repents. Probation is already closed. They're still cursing God as the hail is falling. But here in the seventh plague, to rescue his people, in the midst of all of this going on, we hear the voice of God say, it is done. This is when deliverance of God's people takes place. Here in the seventh plague. Great controversy, 637. That voice shakes the heavens and the earth. There's a mighty earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. Quoting scripture, we just read it. The firmament appears to open and shut. The glory from the throne of God seems flashing through. The mountains shake like a reed in the wind. 
and ragged rocks are scattered on every side. There is a roar as of a coming tempest. The sea is lashed into fury. There is heard the shriek of a hurricane like the voice of demons upon a mission of destruction. The whole earth heaves and swells like the waves of the sea. Its surface is breaking up. Its very foundations seem to be giving way. Mountain chains are sinking. Inhabited islands disappear. The seaports that have become like Sodom for wickedness are swallowed up by the angry waters. Babylon the Great has come to remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Quoting scripture again. Great hailstones, every one about the weight of a talent, are doing their work of destruction. The proudest cities of the earth are laid low. The lordly palaces upon which the world's greatest men have lavished their wealth in order to glorify themselves are crumbling to ruin before their very eyes. Prison walls are rent asunder and God's people who have been held in bondage for their faith are set free. So in the midst of great cities being destroyed, seaports like Sodom being destroyed. Babylon is destroyed. Great hailstones fall upon the wicked. There's extensive blackness and shrieks of hurricanes. This is all clearly the language of the seventh plague of Revelation 16. This is the end of the world, and God's people, it says, are delivered. Friends, I think it's very possible that we may live through this time, and that we ourselves may hear with our own ears the voice of God saying, we're delivered. It is done. The parallel verse to this that we already looked at, but I want to go back to, is Daniel chapter 12, the first two verses. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. We looked at that, the great prince who stands, which watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, since there was a nation even to that time. And then we read, at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. But then I want to point out verse 2. Now, we don't talk about this much. I don't think I've ever preached on this before. But in verse 2, at this same time that we've just been talking about, the deliverance of God people, notice in verse 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Friends, this is not talking about the general resurrection. Perhaps you recall the millennium. The Bible calls it a thousand years. And we have the first resurrection at the beginning of the thousand years when Jesus comes. We have the second resurrection after he brings Jerusalem down. That's a separate study. But many of you know this from Scripture. And so there's this first resurrection of the righteous, which if we die in the Lord, that's what we'll be part of. But then there's this second resurrection of the wicked at the end of the thousand years. That's the one we don't want to be part of. But this is not talking about that. Here's the two resurrections, John 5, 28 and 29. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection, that's the first one of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation, that's after the thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 5 says it this way, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the wicked. Verse 6, it says, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death has no power. And so we have these two resurrections separated by a thousand years. Is that what Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 is talking about? It's not. But these should be priests of God and shall reign with him a thousand years and so on. So we have that there 
in the Bible. We have the, the proof of this, and it's a, a very brief overview, but I think you know that there's these two resurrections. That's common knowledge. But let's read verse 2 again. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Who's going to be raised at that time to eternal life and to shame and everlasting contempt? I believe this verse here is a hint of a special resurrection, not a general resurrection, a special resurrection. Revelation 1-7 gives another hint. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. I thought those that pierced him wouldn't come up until after the thousand years were done. But it says right here in the first chapter of Revelation, even those that pierced him are going to see him coming. How is that going to happen? There's a hint. There's a special resurrection. Matthew 26, 64, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus was talking about this during his trial, and he says, you will see with your own eyes. How are they going to see? They persecuted Jesus. Are they going to be part of the first resurrection? No. Not until the end of the thousand years. Again, another hint off the lips of Jesus himself that there will be a special resurrection before he comes. I'm so thankful for Great Controversy that spells this out a little bit. Great Controversy 637, it says, graves are opened, and she quotes this verse, Daniel 12, verse 2, many of them that slept in the dust of the earth awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We just read that. And then we have the first group, all who have died in the faith of the third angel's message come forth from the tomb glorified to hear God's covenant of peace and those who have kept his law. And so that first group, we have those that have kept the beautiful promises of God and they have died in the faith of the third angel's message, which would be from 1844 to the second coming of Christ. This is not necessarily all the righteous who have died since 1844. There are many righteous who never accepted the Sabbath and these special truths they were never made aware of. They lived up to the light which they had. But those that take place or that come in this special resurrection are Seventh-day Adventists who believe the third angel's message, have proclaimed the third angel's message, and did the work of the third angel's message. People like our pioneers, James and Ellen White, J.N. Andrews, and other righteous pioneers, many of the giants of our faith who have been laid to rest before the coming of the Lord, who embrace the third angel's message, these will be resurrected just before Jesus comes back. So they can see Jesus coming in the clouds. So this wonderful promise for us as Seventh-day Adventists this morning is that if we are laid to rest before Jesus comes back, but we, we will be resurrected as if we were alive when Jesus comes, if we accept and embrace and proclaim this three angels' message. That's exciting. But it's not only that group. There's two other groups. The quote continues, those also which pierced him, Revelation 1-7, those that mocked and derided Christ, dying agonies, they'll be resurrected. To see that this person, whom they mocked, who they jeered at, who they spit in his face, that's the same person in all of his glory. And then the third group, the most violent opposers of his truth and his people are raised to behold him in his glory and to see the honor placed upon the loyal and obedient. 
Who are some of the most violent opposers of his truth and his people? You have to think, in light of this series that we've done, some of the popes will be there, persecuted 50 million plus of God's people. Many other persecutors of God's people. And they will see with their own eyes at that moment the one that they rejected and they worked so adamantly against coming in the clouds of glory in this special resurrection. Continuing on, it says, Thick clouds still cover the sky, yet the sun now and then breaks through, appearing like the avenging eye of Jehovah. Fierce lightnings leap from the heavens, enveloping the earth in a sheet of flame. Above the terrific roar of thunder, voices mysterious and awful declare the doom of the wicked. The words spoken are not comprehended by all, but they are distinctly understood by the false teachers. Those who a little before were so reckless, so boastful and defiant and exultant in their cruelty to God's commandment-keeping people are now overwhelmed with consternation and shudder in fear. Their wails are heard above the sound of the elements. Demons acknowledge the deity of Christ and tremble before his power while men are supplicating for mercy and groveling in abject terror. Friends, this is not repentance. They're not seeking to be right with God, but these demons and the wicked are overwhelmed with fear and abject terror of what their choices have brought to them. And friends, this is very clear. I don't want to be a false teacher. The reality is that it's not always popular to give the truth as it is in Jesus. We talk so much about I'm offended. And sometimes I'm offended for somebody else. We extend the offense. Well, they're not necessarily offended. I'm going to be offended for them. And we talk about who's offended and how they're offended and what was said that was offended, what we need to get rid of because of the offense, and this needs to come down and that needs to go away. But nobody's asking the question, how does God feel? What offends God? How is he offended by our lifestyle, by our choices? When his kids make these awful choices and they're reaping the, the, the terrible effects of their choices. And that's offensive to a loving God. And he says, there's a better way. So where was I? It's not always popular to give the truth. As it is in Jesus. I've lost friends in this life over the truth as it is in Jesus. You have too. You know what it feels like to be ridiculed and mocked and laughed at, made fun of for sharing simply what it says in God's word. I'm not saying that this is what scripture says, but somebody's offended and they mock and they ridicule. It doesn't fit the narrative of the day. And so I've been called, and maybe you have too, closed-minded, out of touch with reality, just because you want to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. People may have called you a legalist because you desire to live up to standards, to aspire to dress with modest simplicity, that what you eat and drink or whatever you do should bring honor and glory to God, that how we live should be in response to his grace and that that matters, and that by grace we can overcome the evil habits of this world, but for some, that's legalism. Don't even try well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, 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 you can't. Don't be a legalist. Just live in the grace, bask in the grace, and just keep on sinning. Don't worry about it. What they don't understand is that good works are not the root of our salvation. They're the fruit of our salvation. Amen. Of what Jesus has done to transform our hearts and our lives. 
by their fruits you shall know them. Maybe you've been called a bigot. Judgmental, holier than thou, straight-laced, whatever it is, because you don't accept every lifestyle and every choice under the sun as okay. Of course you love the person, but that doesn't mean that you can just condone and celebrate the choices they've made that fully contradict God's word. I absolutely want to give the truth to people in a spirit of humility and love, to be gracious with people as God is gracious with me, as Jesus was gracious throughout the Gospels, receiving people where they are as God lovingly and graciously receives me where I am. But even when you do that, you'll lose friends. Jesus himself, Mark 10, verse 29, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, sisters or father, mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who now shall not receive a hundredfold now and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, if, if gaining every friend in this world is the point, Jesus is a sorry example. He desires that all come unto him, but he's not going to change his theology to make everybody happy. He has a higher power that he serves. That was his heavenly father. And when push came to shove, he upheld the truth rather than giving in to the pressures of men. And it got him crucified. But sadly, there are false teachers out there today, even in the Seventh-day Adventist church that are giving soft messages patting people on the back. It's okay to live a Laodicean lifestyle, to be lukewarm, but it's really just preparing Seventh-day Adventists to not be committed to God, not be surrendered to God, not learning what it means to trust in God. And when push comes to shove and the pressures come down hard, they're just gonna receive the mark of the beast because the message is continually, if you love Jesus, it doesn't matter what you do. If you love Jesus, it doesn't matter how you worship. If you love Jesus, it doesn't matter your sinful habits. And so if I love Jesus, I can go along with the crowd. I can please both. But the time is coming when you can't. Jesus himself said, if you love me, do what? Ignore my commandments. There's plenty of love. There's plenty of grace. Sounds like the 60s and 70s, right? No, he says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. If you don't love me, don't bother. But if you love me, don't you want to do the things that please him? John 10, 10, I come that they might have life, then they might have it how? More abundantly. It really comes down to, do we believe that when it comes to obedience? Do we believe that what he's asking us, that we might have life and have it dull and boring and terrible and awful and miserable? That's how we read the verse oftentimes. It's Saturday night. What should we do? Nothing. We're Christians and it's boring, it's terrible, it's, tar- it's awful. No, it's not. He's come to give us life and then we can have it more abundantly to have the joy-filled life, to have peace, to have assurance, to have a sense of purpose and calling of something bigger than ourselves. And the world can't offer that. It tries and tries and tries, but it leaves people empty over and over and over. And some people get up and share testimony. I've tried, I've been here, I've done there, I've gone, all this stuff. And I was empty, 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 empty. And then Jesus filled my life. Finally, for the first time, I have joy. I have peace. I have contentment. I have a sense of purpose. 
And so the seventh plague is poured out just before Jesus returns. These false teachers will reap the fruit of their own false teachings. I don't know about you, but I don't want to listen to false teachers. I don't want to read false teachers because if I do, I will become a false teacher myself. Rather, let us listen to the truth as it is in Jesus and from inspiration. And we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. A few more slides here. The voice of God is heard from heaven declaring the day and hour of Jesus' coming. Won't that be interesting? You'll hear audibly a voice from heaven telling you the day and hour of his coming and delivering the everlasting covenant to his people. Like peals of loudest thunder, his words roll through the earth. What a great moment that will be. So even those that are part of the special resurrection will hear God's voice when the day and hour of Jesus' coming is declared. I want to be there at that moment, don't you? The Israel of God stand listening with their eyes fixed upward. Their countenance are lighted up with glory and shine as did the face of Moses when he came down from Sinai. The wicked cannot look upon them. And when the blessing is pronounced on those who have honored God by keeping his Sabbath holy, there is a mighty shout of victory. And what a shout of victory that will be. May we all give that shout on that day. Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud about half the size of a man's hand. It's the cloud which surrounds the Savior, which seems in the distance to be shrouded in darkness. The people of God know this to be the sign of the Son of God. In solemn silence, they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious until it is great white cloud, its base a glory like a consuming fire, and above it with a rainbow of the covenant. And Jesus rides forth as mighty conqueror. Friends, that's what we're living for at Seventh-day Adventists. This is the moment we are waiting for, to see a small black cloud about the size of a man's hand getting bigger and bigger until it comes to a great white cloud and Jesus riding forth as a mighty conqueror. May we live to see that day where we are delivered and Jesus comes as our deliverer. And friends, let me just suggest there's nothing in this earth that is worth missing out on that moment. There is not pain that you have gone through there that is worth missing that moment for. There is not a disappointment or a frustration in the church that is worth missing and turning your back on God over. Friends, Jesus loves us and he's coming to deliver us no matter how hard the time of trouble is going to be. It will pale in significance to the moment of deliverance that will be ours when Jesus comes in the courts of heaven. Friends, there's nothing in this earth that's worth missing out on that moment. Nothing is worth it. I think of Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are you suffering through something right now? Class, a teacher, a relationship that's totally gone awry, a child that's out of the church, a layoff, financial struggles, you name it. Is this verse true or should we rip it out of our Bibles? For I consider that suffering for this present time are not worthy. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. You think your trouble today is going to consume your mind for eternity? Think again. You think it's going to last forever? Think again. You think it's another night without a morning? Think again. 
Friends, Jesus is coming soon because he loves us. He is going to deliver us. And no matter how hard the time of trouble is going to be, it will pale in significance to the moment of deliverance that will be ours when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. Isaiah 25, verse 9, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited and waited and waited for him. And he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him, so we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Beautiful verse, Isaiah 25, verse 9. So friends, my appeal is simple. Is Jesus your God this morning? Because God's word says he's coming for us and that he'll save us. Friends, the the picture in scripture is that Jesus will come at midnight to deliver us from the wicked who will try to destroy us. And he'll also deliver us from this world of sin. And next week we'll look at that more closely, this second coming of Jesus. I thought we just looked at it. Well, we're going to look at some more. But clearly the deliverance of God's people takes place finally, fully, and completely when Jesus appears in the clouds of heaven to take us off this planet. And friends, I don't think it's going to be long. The things that we see happening, the headlines, the unprecedented headlines we keep seeing in the news... Truly, it can't be long. And friends, before we know it, he who says he will come, will come. And we will see the graves open and those who have been torn from us in death, those who have lived righteous lives in ages past, will come out of the graves and in a blink of an eye, our feet will be coming off the earth and we will be ascending into heaven, off of this planet, to meet the Lord in the air, to ever be with the Lord. Do you want that experience to be yours? Do you want the deliverance of God to be yours? Do you want to spend eternity with the Lord? If so, don't get hung up on the hardships of life and the here and now. Focus on Jesus. Focus on his promise. Focus on his word. Focus on the day when all the troubles of this life will seem so small and insignificant as we behold the glory of the Lord. May we each be able to say, lo, this is my God. I have waited for him. I have trusted in him. I place all hope in him, and he will save me. Make it personal. I will rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, like Scott O'Grady years ago, all of us find ourselves behind enemy lines. And on this side of things, life is hard. As the devil seeks to destroy and malign us in any way that he possibly can. And there are times that we feel that perhaps we've been abandoned. Perhaps we've been forgotten. Perhaps our pings and our prayers are not being heard. But Lord, at midnight... You will come. You will come with every force at your disposal. And the wicked will be overwhelmed. The demons of hell will tremble as they see the glory of the God that we serve as he comes to take us home, to deliver us from the clutches of the enemy. Lord, may we live for you each and every day in light 
of that glorious day you come to take us home is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.